We're gonna go drill, baby, drill. We're drill, baby, drill. We're bringing it way down. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable July. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to another year of the Sustainable Hour podcast. We'd like to start off, as always, by acknowledging the land that we're broadcasting, the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to their elders, past, present, and those that will earn that important honour in the future. We acknowledge that we cannot hope to have any form of climate justice without justice for First Nations peoples in this country. And we also have an ancient store of knowledge that they've honed from nurturing their land and their communities for millennia before their land was stolen. And in that store, we have many of the answers to the climate crisis we face. The Sustainable Hour team is live again. Welcome back from a long break. Colin, Tony, how's it been? Good, Mick. Yeah, yeah. pretty good this way, Mick. Good. Enjoy doing the show and it, it's, it's good to have a break. And uh, we still had a presence over summer as well. So uh, from pre-recorded material. So yeah, I think all the boxes have been ticked. I really like to have this summer break period for reflection. I have to say, it's it's nice to get down in tempo, feet in the sand, have more time to basically be out in nature or, or, or do different things. This is important, isn't it? I have to say also that I think 2024 looks both exciting and scary like hell. And we'll talk about that in the Sustainable Hour today, what that means. But first of all, February is an exciting month because that's the month of the Sustainable Living Festival. But first, Colin Market, what's the global outlook for this week? Yeah, well, thank you, Mick. Well, you know that the biggest thing that's happened over the last month has been Christmas, which sledges and steamrollers everything else out of the news. But I've been sifting through and I've got quite a bit of interesting stuff to share with you today. So the roundup this week begins in Europe where the EU-backed agency Copernicus stated flatly, categorically and without any doubt that last year, 2023, shattered global annual heat records on several occasions. And on many occasions, it broke the world's agreed-on warming threshold of 1.5 degrees. The official average for the year wound up at 1.48 degrees above pre-industrial times. It's just one tick, barely below the 1.5 degree limit that was set in the 2015 Paris Climate Accord. And that was aimed at avoiding the most severe effects of warming. But January 24 was so warm that it's almost certain to exceed the 1.5 degree threshold by now. Though actual observations only date back two centuries, several scientists say evidence from tree rings and ice cores suggest that this is the warmest that the Earth has been in more than 100,000 years. It basically means that our cities, our roads, our monuments, our farms, in practice, 
all human activities never had to cope with the climate this warm. That's Copernicus director Carlo Bontempo. There were simply no cities, no books, no agriculture or domesticated animals on the planet the last time the temperature was as high as it is now. For the first time, Copernicus recorded a day when the world averaged at least two degrees more than the pre-industrial times. It happened twice, and it narrowly missed a third time around Christmas, he said. Elsewhere, the United States recorded 28 weather disasters last year that caused at least a billion dollars damage. Each of them caused at least one billion dollars damage. That was the threshold that they set. And that smashed 2020's previous record of 22, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. But you just listen to the figures. There was an average of three weather disasters a year in the 1980s. There was just under six a year in the 1990s. And then we've come up now to 28 in the last year, and they're bigger. Last year's 28 weather disasters in the US included a drought, four floods, 19 severe storms, two hurricanes, a wildfire and a winter storm. They combined to kill 492 people and they caused in total $93 billion in damage to the US. Meanwhile, in Antarctica, the sea ice uh, hit record low levels in 2023 and broke eight monthly records for low sea ice. That's Copernicus again. There were several factors that made 2023 the warmest year on records, but by far the biggest was an ever-increasing amount of heat-trapping greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Now, this is according to Copernicus's Samantha Burgess. Those gases came from only one source, she reiterated. It's from the burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas. And you can't make things much clearer than that, no matter how much others might try and muddy the water. That's the sheer fact of it. We're burning too much fossil fuels. Now, while this weekly report that I give you usually quotes climate and weather scientists, social scientists warned last week that humanity may be about to sleepwalk into dangerous new era in human history. Their research is showing the increasing climate shocks could trigger social unrest and political authoritarian nationalistic backlashes. The warning came from political scientist Dr. Reinhard Sturer, who is a researcher at the University of Natural Resources and Life Sciences in Vienna. He warned that the mental conflicts of climate change denial against the background of hard scientific evidence was causing mental and social disruptions to people around the world. The real danger is that there are so many other crises around us that there's no effort left for the climate crisis, he said. We will find all kinds of reasons not to put more effort into climate protection because we are overburdened with other things like inflation and wars all around us. We'll be doing this for a very long time, he warned. Not accepting climate facts, pretending that we're doing a good job, pretending that it's not going to be that bad. 
Now, in light of all that, I've got a couple of pieces of good news. Last week in London, Greta Thunberg and four other protesters were found not guilty of breaking the law when they refused to follow police instructions to move on during a climate protest. District Judge John Law threw out the charges due to no evidence of any offence being committed and added that the police had attempted to impose unlawful conditions. That was uh, announced at the weekend. Also in London, Britain announced that it was the first country in the G20 to halve its carbon emissions. Its responsible minister said this. Claire Cortino, who is Britain's Secretary of State for Energy Security and Net Zero, said new data indicated emissions had halved in 50 years, and that showed Britain was a world leader in tackling climate change. The data compiled by the Global Carbon Project, it's a research partner of the World Climate Research Programme, shows British CO2 emissions are now down 52% on the peak of the 1970s, she said. According to that data, which was updated last month, emissions from fossil energy production were 319 million tonnes in 2022, and that's down from 660 million tonnes in 1971. As late as 2010, Britain was still emitting more than 500 million tonnes each year. Britain is the first country in the G20 to have halved its carbon emissions, she said. We are world leaders in tackling climate change. And I'd like to add just one little addendum on the end of that. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is likely to announce a general election during this year. Anyway, that good news closes my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Luke Taylor. Luke is the director of the National Sustainability Festival and it's going into its 25th year. So it, it's going to go right through February. So Luke's, we always get Luke on around this time of the year to have a chat about what's coming up there. So welcome, Luke. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, thanks for having me, Anthony. What's what's up front this year for the sustainability, National Sustainability Festival? Yeah, well, as you said, I mean, the big news really for us this year is that we're we're celebrating our 25th birthday, um, 25 years of uh, bringing a whole range of different sustainability events to uh, to not just Melbourne but also now to a national audience. And uh, as uh, Collins just pointed out, the situation in relation to our environment and climate is incredibly dire and there's no time like the present to obviously get involved and try to help communities mobilize for uh, putting more pressure on the political system and um and the wider community to uh, to join efforts to reduce our impact and call the planet really i mean that is now the job as it's really quite clear the evidence is clear that emission reductions alone are not going to solve the problem or provide a safe climate, that we now have to start really thinking about how we're going to actively cool the planet and uh, and get 
even the emissions that we've already released, the dangerous level of emissions that we've already released in this out of the system that's now pushing critical Earth systems to the point of, uh, of no return. So, Luke, does that mean the joy of the Sustainable Living Festival, which is something I really remember this festival from because I arrived 11 years ago in Australia, coming straight from Denmark with my family. And one of the first things I experienced coming here was to go out in the, in, you know, along the river in Melbourne and have this fantastic experience of, of joy of so many good things happening in this space. It sounds like that now, 10 years, 11 years later, we're more focusing on the trouble, on all the bad things that are going to happen and, and finding resilience in that space. Or, or how do you see that? Um, well, no, I, I mean, I I mean, I take your point that obviously the situation, that we're in a worse situation now, 25 years on than we were 25 years before. But there was still 25 years ago, there was still massive issues. I mean, climate change was still a reality. Um, ecological destruction was still a reality. We were still on, on that train. Um, so, I mean, I don't think the festival has lost its positive, proactive, solution-orientated approach. I think that the day that we do that, then, you know, we, we should basically shut up shop because, you know, that's really at the end of the day what we're trying to do is connect people to the action that hopefully is going to make, you know, somewhat of a difference. So I think that um, the festival's always tried to look the tiger in the eye, so to speak, and confront the issues. And and so we we have to be real. We have to understand that things, uh, you know, obviously are progressively getting worse. They're not getting better. And, you know, that's that's what you know as a whole i think environment and climate movement we have to be we have to be real about that if we're in some form of denial that um that the as collins just pointed out in and his review that the situation is only getting worse and and the implications and the risks are only growing if we're not real about that we're never going to solve the problem our the critical thing is that our solution suite has to match the level of risk and the problem that we face. And that's one thing that, you know, we've been talking about for quite some time is that, you know, as a movement, while there's been progress in obviously the renewables and the emission reduction space to some level, um, we need to be talking about a much wider suite of solutions um, and how we speed up the, the action, obviously, in getting those uh, solutions on the table at, at an international, uh, national and local level. The Sustainable Living Festival has really created some groundbreaking events over time. I remember just before COVID hit in 2020, more than 2,000 people gathering at the City Hall in Melbourne to talk about the climate emergency. And that was a, an amazing event. It was really groundbreaking at the time. What's the festival offering this year in that space of the climate emergency and and being upfront, as you say, with it? Yeah, well, we're holding it what we're calling the mini summit on climate cooling. It's the the climate cooling mini summit on the twenty fourth of February. Um, so I think that's that's a really a good event for your listeners to um, to connect in with. Um, we there's a whole range of speakers that'll be 
on show on that afternoon at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne. So come on down and get connected. I think, Mick, you're even speaking at that event with the um, the new Climate Rescue Accord group um, who are trying to push political parties here in Australia to adopt the kind of action, the suite of action, the speed of action that would make uh, a meaningful change in relation to, to climate action. Um, we've got David Spratt on the bill as well, and we'll be doing some crosses to some international activists um, from around the around the Northern Hemisphere and, and other parts of the world who are doing some really innovative climate action work. A lot of youth groups now who are getting into the space of looking at climate interventions and climate cooling campaigning. So there's some groundbreaking stuff that we want to bring our audience and um, come on down to the Capitol Theatre on the afternoon of the 24th of February. Hey, Luke. This program has been going for 10 years now and it's changed completely, really. We started off by giving tips on sustainable living for an hour each Wednesday. Now we're very politicised and we are very uh, concerned. Now, from what you've just been saying about the different speakers and the um, subjects that they've got, that's um, you're as concerned as we are now. But what I'm really asking now is, have you kept any of the old sustainable living things? Because people will be thinking, what's in it for me? What can I learn from this? Have you got speakers talking about switching to EVs, how to decarbonise their homes, things like that? Or is it all politicised? No, no, not at all. I mean, I think I think that the, the festival has always been trying to serve actually quite a wide audience in relation to its needs and there are people obviously that we know and we've been part of that community for a long time who are ready to adopt um the sort of the lifestyle so to speak changes um that are available to them now and whether that's um, retrofitting their home or connecting to solar or as you say buying evs whatever it may be um those Kind of events are on display at on and in the program, and again they'll always be part of it. But we know that that's only you know one stream of you know action. That that's actually been a strategy that part of the environment movement has been pursuing for quite some time. And the reality is that um, just behaviour change or lifestyle change uh, alone um, at the level that it's um, that we're pursuing at the moment is not going to solve the problem without political action. Um, we will not get the level of change, the speed of change that we need. So it's got to be a mix of those things, I think, Colin. And and I think the festivals always had that mix of both the political and and trying to find the leadership in our community and also you know the lifestyle change and and that continues on and it's a really important part of mix of the of the program and and. People will be able to see that on display again. Full program is online at sustainabilityfestival.au and um, check it out. Let's hear, Luke, just a few examples on the joy side. What are you looking forward to as some events that, that are going to cheer us up? Well, I'm actually really looking forward to an event, a screening of a film called Finding the Money documentary, which is looking at this modern money 
theory, um, which you probably have heard a bit about. Um, and we're actually ha holding a special event following the screening with Stephanie Kelton, who is the world's leading advocate for modern monetary theory. Um, now, I'm excited about that one because really what it's showing is a little bit of a window of you know, what kind of happened during you know, COVID, which were we saw an incredible level of government leadership um, based on a threat that, that the community was facing. And it just shows the level of response that even conservative governments, as we saw here in Australia, conservative governments that went into that mode, essentially emergency mode. And this is not a, a new concept to this program. This is something that's been discussed before about how um, it is actually possible for communities, leaders to go into a form of emergency mode to respond to a threat um, to the community. And sometimes we talk ourselves, you know, out of our ability um, as community or as politicians or as leaders to be able to respond at that level. And we know that this crisis, the climate crisis, the biodiversity emergency re requires a, a level of response that is at that same level or obviously more um, in relation to international efforts. So the economy and our relationship to the economy and how we use the economy to be able to mobilise the necessary resources and responses to climate is absolutely fundamental. And this documentary gives us um, some insights, I think, into how um, aspects of that you know, potentially could be done. So I'm really um, putting in a big plug and I'm very excited about the fact that Stephanie is going to be part of the program um, as I said, she is um, the world's leading advocate in relation to modern monetary theory. She'll be here in Australia touring um, and we've got it for a special event, a post-festival event on the 9th of March um, and a special screening of her film on the 28th um, of, of February. So definitely check that one out. That's something I'm very excited about. Someone who spoke about economy at length recently in Las Vegas was Trump. Biden's inflation disaster has crushed your household finances. I mean, what he's done to your, your finances are incredible. He's crushed your finances and his open borders policy. They've demolished your wages. His inflation that he caused, it would have been so easy not to. All it was is energy. Remember this. Gasoline, fuel, oil, natural gas went up to a level that it was impossible not. That's what caused inflation. And we're going to bring it down because we're going to go drill, baby, drill. We're drill, baby, drill. We're bringing it way down. I think uh, it's important that people hear about Trump, but they actually don't hear what he's saying. Drill, baby, drill. And then a huge applause. And this is in 2024, when all the graphs are showing, as we heard Colin talk about, what's happening in the real world. And that's, look what economy is also about. As he says, you know, people get angry when the prices on petrol go up, when actually we should be cheering when they go up. Yeah, I mean, I think um, 
I mean, it, you know, it's it's obviously your clip there, Mick, is the, you know, is a reality check of, of obviously a, uh, a force within not just politics within the US, but many other parts of the world. We even have have that here in Australia. I mean, even though there is an argument to run that one of the things that the climate movement has been successful in in the recent years is there's a feeling that we have at least won the battle over climate denial in the sense that climate change is not a reality. I mean, we've, I think we've in, in the mainstream we're past that point that most people, most rational sort of people within the mainstream have accepted that climate change is a reality. Now that that's arguably something that has been won within the uh, by the climate movement. What we haven't done yet is um, win the battle of just how severe the risk is. That is something that which is obviously completely misunderstood by people and that's still work to be done. Um, so, you know, that's the big, the big next sort of battleground, I think, in relation to, you know, climate activism. Um, but alongside of that, we know that it's very hard to win that battle unless you're providing a pathway for people where they can see a place for them that isn't overly uh, troublesome or restrictive or, you know, it, it, it provides a, a pathway where that they can see themselves within that. And that's that's obviously what we're seeing partly within sort of the, you know, the, the Trump sort of movement there is people, as it's been reported and commented on for, you know, years and years, people breaking down. And it's, you know, we look at the history of these kind of situations and we see that, you know, people that feel not connected to the system or feel left behind or whatever, then gravitate towards these sorts of movements that, you know, fill that that need for them. Movements that have no problem with lies and misinformation. And frankly, yeah. why I'm so scared when I listen to the way Trump speaks, it so much reminds me of things that I have read and heard about how Hitler deceived an entire nation back in 1933. And basically, when he got into power, he did as he had promised, which was he, he, he demolished democracy and he ran a dictatorship. And yeah. that became, you know, we know what then happened. Absolutely. I mean, it, one of the things that troubles me, I think, the most in relation to some of the politics in America is the the disregard by the by parts of the left for for, for what's happening, you know, with the next next run with Trump. I mean, it happened before; it happened in the first run, and it's happening again. And I think that you know that those people are really foolish um, that if they don't put weight behind. Um, efforts to prevent that from happening um, because they are so disgruntled with the whole system, including Biden and others. I mean, you know, as you've just pointed out there and just shown that clip, that that is that is only just a small taste of what would be uh, unleashed, and nobody from any side of politics should <laughs> be fooled about that. Yeah, the difficulty is. Uh, that Trump, it doesn't matter what he says, he's going to get cheered. 
because he has become the figurehead for the non-aligned people who just simply hate the way that the world is going. They were the ones who were climate deniers. And rather than now accept that they were wrong, they're now saying, oh, no, Trump's right. Let's make America great again, blah, blah, blah. What we've really got to do, we on the, what can we say, the environmental side of politics, is we've got to understand the appeal that Trump has and find a way of getting around it and getting to those people who are cheering no matter what he says. I mean, he, if he says, I'm going to build a wall, they'll cheer. If he says, um, um, Biden's a liar, they'll cheer. They won't ask for evidence. They'll just cheer because he's just become the, the focus of all of their anger. This is cold. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. Before I even arrive at the Oval Office, shortly after we win the presidency, I will have the horrible war between Russia and Ukraine settled. I'll get it done fast. I know them both. And we will restore on this planet peace through Earth. I am the only candidate who can make this promise to you. I will prevent World War III. And we're very close to World War III. We're very close to World War III. And on day one, I will end Crooked Joe Biden's insane electric vehicle mandate. They weren't working too well in Iowa. It was 40 degrees below zero and you couldn't, you get into an electric car and you hear a buzzing. I said, what's that, sir? It, it works in zero, but you start getting below zero. And you had those cars all over the place. It'd be a good time to take one. You could have taken one. You could have had all you wanted. But it wasn't, they were not working too well in Iowa. Think of that. We voted on a day where it was 40 below zero, and we had a tremendous vote. It was like, those people are hardy people. Somebody said they're very hardy. The people of Iowa are very hardy indeed. They voted in record numbers, and I will end his American energy war. It's a war in American energy. It's a war. Just yesterday, Biden blocked the export of American natural gas to other countries. You know, he doesn't want he doesn't want plants built in the United States, even though that's the best thing you could do. This stuff has been worked on for years. We approved. I approved many of them. We got many built in Louisiana and other places, but he stopped it. And why he stopped it? I guess it was the environmentalists, I guess. But uh, it's good for the environment, not bad and good for our country. I will approve the export terminals on my very first day back. I'm going to be signing so many different mandates on my first day back. All of that stuff, all of that stuff will be approved. Climate change is not a, a tragedy. Climate change is a crime against humanity committed on the part of these oil companies. These reports are pretty scary, but are they true? Has there actually been any global warming? All of us would like to believe that corporations do the right thing. They're not intentionally deceiving us or destroying the world. If we all work toward the same goal, I believe we can change the perceptions of the American people about energy. We need you to be an important part of it. Together, we can make a difference. Did we aggressively fight yeah. against some of the science? Yeah. Yes. 
For decades, fossil fuel companies have coordinated what is arguably the most consequential deception campaign in history. And so far, they've gotten away with it. We have a mountain of evidence showing that they knew for decades exactly where we'd be today and lied about it time and time again. The state of California is suing big oil in one of the most significant legal challenges the industry has ever faced. The financial liability that the companies could face is, you know, potentially existential. It's a huge threat to the industry and they know it. This lawsuit tells a story about how some of the biggest companies in the world lied to protect themselves. But it also does something much bigger. For the first time in history, it could actually force them to pay for the damage. It's a topic that we'll, I'm sure we're going to get returned to more and more as the year progresses. Just conscious that we have another guest in the studio today in Anthony McMullen. Anthony has great expertise in how cooperatives and mutuals work, probably more than anyone in this country and internationally. But, um, yeah, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Tony. A pleasure. So tell us about cooperatives and mutuals and why you're so enthusiastic about them. Well, um, yeah, before I get right into it, um, I'd also just like to recognise traditional owners, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and in particular recognise the 224 Aboriginal-led cooperatives and mutuals across Australia that have a combined turnover of um, more than $1.5 billion, employ many people, and also just recognise the contribution that they make. Uh, they're a good place to start in terms of cooperatives. Um, cooperatives tend to really resonate with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. A lot of the things that they say about organising economic life and business um, you just naturally uses a lot of the same language that as part of the global cooperative movement. Um, those cooperatives and mutuals provide much more sort of volunteer time. They sponsor local events and cultural events to a much higher level than community-owned or privately-owned businesses in their communities. And they have a really strong focus on employment of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, I just firstly, before I jump into co-ops, uh, more sort of nitty-gritty, i just comment on some of the discussion around what's happening globally in terms of the insecurity that people are feeling. So just to address some of the things that you said, Colin, you know, um, I don't actually think that people are, will cheer anything that Trump says. Um, that clip really highlighted um, what Trump was talking about was about um, household budgets. And, you know, this is this is a very sort of current conversation that's happening in Australia, particularly around inflation. But really, I mean, when we think about the way a lot of us live, and it's much more hard-edged in the US than it is here, but it's very hard-edged for a lot of people here, is that, you know, people are two or three months away from, Sometimes, um, you know, losing their job, if they've lost their job, they might lose their home, right? Um, if if this environmental stuff, oh, okay, I, I actually think people people that are in denial, as has been said, that, that there's a reduction of that, 
But I reckon in their heart of hearts, they actually believe that there is something up with the environment, right? But they're scared, right? They're scared of losing their job. They're scared of, um, you know, um, in a lot of cases, destitution, let's be frank. Um, you know, if you look at the US, they're one of the most incarcerated, I think they are the most incarcerated population of people um, globally. Uh, why? Because there's so much economic insecurity. And I, I was reading some really interesting sort of analysis of um, why, why are people backing Trump even when he is in court and he's, you know, up for so much stuff? It's because so many people in America end up having um, problems in the legal system because of, there's such a strong black economy, there's so much economic insecurity. So I really think that we need to kind of just really recognise that World War II, which has been mentioned, didn't come out of thin air. Obviously what was being said was part of the economic insecurity that um, people in lots of parts of Europe were feeling and then they went to fascism, right? So what do cooperatives have to do with that? And, and I think cooperatives offer um, not a utopia, but they do offer an alternative that's beyond just individual action around environment and various things, you know, that we can do things, you know, purchase by purchase, you know, is the thing, you know. Think of your shopping, ethical purchasing, either on a social or environmental thing. That, that's been very strong and it's still important, but that's no longer seen in so much of the solution. And then people started to talk about, what about businesses? What about these sort of social enterprises? And then we're starting to think about what about the economy and how maybe we could have a, a, a better sort of social economy. How do we do that? Well, part of the way that we can address that is through um, cooperative enterprise. It's not the solution, but it's part of the solution. And I think of a family member who I love very much who's quite a Trumpian, right? And uh, when I um, told uh, my family member about this co-op called Earthworker in Morwell that's uh, producing solar hot water units and is employing local people with local ownership. It's environmental. It's, um, you know, getting jobs in the local community when, you know, that, that's been a um, emissions-dependent kind of region. My family members started to go, oh, that's great. That's great. No caveats, no nothing. Oh, I love it. Got an engineering background, so could see all of that. So I think that that uh, we need to really focus on the economic and economic insecurity because I believe that's really at the root of people's fear and why they may accept in their heart of hearts that climate change is happening, but they just don't want to face the reality of it because they think my my economic situation, which is already dicey, might get a lot worse. Mm, I've got a couple of things to pick up on that if I can, Anthony. But first of all, I want to say that um, when we had the second COVID lockdown here in Victoria, my wife and I were quite determined to come out of it with something positive. So mm. we decided that we would decarbonize our household. It took yeah. us just about the uh, best part of a year, which would have been 2022. And we decarbonized right the way through. We started with getting rid of uh, the heater 
and replacing it with electric, uh, uh, an aircon. And then we got rid of the cooker and the gas. We just moved all the gas uh, and quietly learned the different procedures. And then we finished up by buying an electric car and we now charge our electric car solely with solar. And the, the, the long and the short of it is we say we're saving a couple of thousand dollars per year. We haven't paid a bill for 18 months. Now, when I tell people this, they immediately say, well, how much did it cost you? How much did you put in? And I had to total it all up individually because it took a year. And, you know, we, yeah. we got rid of the gas stove and we paid, I don't know, 900 bucks, I think it was, for an electric. It's just a simple like-for-like -like one. But the truth was we didn't spend very much at all, including the car. Uh, we we only spent in somewhere in the region of 40,000 bucks. Now, there are people who were spending more than that on the car. But if they could spend the same amount of money instead of buying a new car, if they could spend that money on decarbonizing their house, they would suddenly find that their, their household expenses are far, far fewer than yeah. they were before. And there's nobody explaining this. And it, but there's also the thing of how do you facilitate that? So, like, everyone can get is recognises car loans, right? You know, get a car mm -hmm. loan. Um, there are, you know, some of these loans for um, making changes to the household, recognising that people will, will save will save money. So, again, I suppose that's a, a way that enterprises, businesses, more socially focused can kind of go, actually, we need to be able to be part of that um, to facilitate that. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's... There's interesting ideas, you know, thing, thing, the story that you just mentioned, Colin, you know, it might be that, you know, the cooperative model is very flexible. There are worker cooperatives. There are also consumer co-ops and buying groups. So, you know, there's nothing stopping um, a whole bunch of people coming together and combining their purchase power, for example, to be able to upgrade their homes. So cooperatives, um, for example, can help facilitate these sorts of changes from a business perspective because they're owned and benefited the, the members who are democratically part of that cooperative. So, um, you know, there's there's lots of opportunities here, but the problem we've got in, in our cooperative and mutual movement is if you've got a, a really cool startup-y idea and it might be you know, environmentally focused or whatever, the mainstream market is there. There are there are funds ready to go from, you know, um, investors, and it's it's uh, there are challenges, there are opportunities. The cult model does allow for investment, but it's just not mainstream. Um, it's not part of our usual conversation. So there's a lot of work to be done in that area. Yeah, look, uh, when I'm not doing this sort of thing, I'm a historian. And one of the things that I've been doing over the course of the past six weeks is putting together a history of the woolen mills in Geelong. We had oh, yeah. nine. One of them was fully cooperative. It was called yeah. the Geelong Sailors and Soldiers Woolen Mill. And basically it was the return soldiers and sailors from the Great War. When the troops who had, the Australian troops who had been fighting in France 
were demobbed after the end of the Great War, which didn't end in a victory. It ended, um, well, it ended with uh, uh, the fact that all of the armies on both sides had had enough of killing each other, and they simply had an armistice and threw their guns down and walked away. And when they were due to come back, when the Australian troops were due to come back, that frightened Billy Hughes and his government to such an extent because here was a, a large number of men who had been trained to kill, who had been exposed to changes in political regimes because while they were in the trenches, the uh, Russian Revolution had gone on. Uh, mm. And they were that was all that they were talking about at that time. And they well outnumbered the police forces in Australia. So whatever they asked for, the federal government gave it to them. That's why we got RSL clubs, because they said, we want a place where we can gather and we gamble and we're not going to have to put up with the police. That's all right. You get them. There you go. And they asked for a woolen mill or they asked for employment in Geelong. And they pointed to the most successful woolen mill and they said, we want one of those. And they built it for them and they ran it as a cooperative. That's the point. It was bought by the returned soldiers using their redundancy money or their, their okay. return. It was run by as a cooperative by the returned soldiers and their dependents. And they employed the widows and the families of their men, their, their comrades who had fallen. Mm. Unfortunately, the model didn't really work. Um, it did for a while. But they also, they took the cooperative thing to its extent and you couldn't get sacked from the RSSW <laughs> mill um, because it was, um, it was a benign cooperative. And eventually it was, um, well, it, it, was, it was overstaffed and paying too much money in a very competitive market. So mm -hmm. the cooperative model is brilliant in theory, but it has to be, able to be manipulated to suit the market. And eventually, of yeah. course, it was because it, the, the place shut down. How long did it go for? Oh, it went for almost 100 years. Um, okay. It closed down in 1970. No, so it went for in the 19, late 1970s. And right mm. now, I'm reminded of it because right now the building still exists. It's got uh, several small companies there. There's a dance studio in there and what have you, but they're now talking about converting it into living accommodation. It's a very mm. big brick building uh, on the Barbon mm. River. Yeah, so look, it went from 1923 till 1977, so it went for 54 years. 54 years. Mm. So what I'd say is that that business went for quite a long time. Um mm. And uh, the, the interesting thing that the research from Sydney Uni um, has brought up, uh, Professor Greg Patmore, is that cooperatives and mutuals last a lot longer than regular mainstream companies. Uh, sometimes they're trickier to set up, but they, but they last a lot longer. Uh, often we have the issue that when a, a cooperative or mutual folds, then often people go, oh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really work, that model doesn't work, but... Um, you know, eight out of ten of us are members of a cooperative or mutual in Australia. 
but only three out of ten of us know, know this. this is the research that came out from the Australia Institute. So, um, you know, we've got a problem in the co-op movement in that we're not really communicating this really big part of all of our lives, you know, and, and some parts of it can be quite, you know, mainstream or, you know, like, like a member of Bank Australia, a very environmentally focused uh, mutual bank, you know, used to be called credit unions, those sorts of things. So um, they're around. But the, the, the problem that you mentioned, though, Colin, is real. It's, it's um, that um, cooperatives have to operate as a business. Often when people think about setting up a co-op, they can be a little bit utopian about it and they haven't really thought about how the business model works, how it's actually a, needs to be a viable business. And then look at the structuring of the cooperative model and who's members and how do we get investment using cooperative methodology. Often they go the other way around because they're, a lot of us are left of centre and we go structure, 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 right? So um, part of my work in cooperative bonds, um, it's a cooperative of co-op developers, we practice what we uh, preach, is to, you know, work with people to get to, on their sort of the, their viability that this is a this is a business idea that'll stack up, and then what are the cooperative options? And you know they can be really small. Where I'm speaking from today is a little co-working cooperative that um, we established here in the heart of Melbourne, just off Little Collins Street, and we survived COVID even though we were relying on people needing you know shared shared space in a, in a small uh, office facility and we run events that, um, you know, um, Tony's been along to as well, uh, uh, talking about the social economy and those sorts of things. So it can be quite small scale, but then there are huge mutuals, um, both here and globally, you know, that there are more people employed by cooperatives and mutuals globally than by multinationals combined. So it's also a very strong global movement as well so yeah we, we, we're not very good at um promoting ourselves but we're around and we can contribute and we're an option so anthony mcmullen you now have the chance to promote yourself how do people get in touch with you if they want to know more and get deeper into this and what do you recommend in terms of our listeners who've just heard you speak what should they do next well it just depends on what they want to achieve really i mean there are all sorts of things that people can achieve at the local level i mean it can be as simple as a small town that's going to lose its pub and then everyone goes hey why don't we buy this together how do we do that oh we set up a co-op how do we do that and that's when you come to someone like myself and the other members of Cooperative Bonds. We're at bonds.coop. And you just go, well, okay, um, how, do, how do we do this? How is this going to be viable? How can it be member-based? How can it be owned by the community? How can we safeguard that in the community? So that might be one example. It's, um, yeah, there are all sorts of ways of doing it. So um, I just suggest people go to bonds.coop. The contact details are there. Yeah, we're a dot co-op so dot c-o-o-p we're not a dot com there is a global thing for cooperatives so check us out yeah that that does happen very frequently in small country towns in australia yeah. where uh, the the hotel is the only one that's left and it will take on board the 
shops that are closing down and winds up as a cooperative owned by all the locals. That's not it's, uncommon. No, it's, and it's just been going, like, people in regional areas just love co-ops. Funny thing mm. about co-ops is they tend to attract people that are very left of centre, but also a lot of regional national party type voters like co-ops as well. So we often have these this kind of interesting um, conversation within our movement. And that's something I love about it. It's it's the reverse of that polarisation, that political polarisation that we were talking about. It's very much what's needed. And, of course, there are plenty of them that, uh, that are housing cooperatives. And that's something that really is um, very necessary at the moment with the the way that the housing market has moved. But look, that's yeah. got to be a topic for another sustainable hour because we're coming towards the end. Mm. Uh, while time's running out, it's been an absolute pleasure. Anthony and Luke, thank you very much. It's uh, it's nice to be back in the saddle, isn't it, fellas? It's nice it's to be back having an intellectual discussion with interesting people. Exactly, and bringing some hope into this, uh, in this, into this world which is full of confusion and lies. Luke, from everything you have heard, what, <laughs> you what is expecting your, that. What is your no, takeaway? Well, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the uh, conversation a lot, and um, and I mean, I think cooperatives play a huge part in our economy, as um, Anthony is. As outlined, and we just we, I don't think we we don't celebrate that enough as a as a as a country, and yet the history of it um, is is pretty powerful, isn't it? Um, I mean, Andy, just can you just mention some of the cooperatives that are connected to to more of the sort of the mainstream consciousness that people would be aware of? Because I think people just don't realise, like some there's some big brands that are co-ops, yeah. And, and I think Absolutely. that in itself sort of tells a story about what's what's possible. I mean, I think most people think about co-ops and they think about, you know, eco-villages and, you know, sort of very um, alternative living sort of scenarios. Mm. There are some huge co-ops and mutuals, you know, like I mentioned, um, you know, the, the banks, the mutual banks, often because they used to be called credit unions and now they're banks or mutual banks, people go, oh, they don't actually recognise them as, as being member owned and the great story of the royal commission into the financial area is none of our lot had to mm -hmm. to to answer to any of this sort of stuff around corruption right so there's definitely those there's um our largest not-for-profit um cooperative our, our biggest cooperative in australia is a is a grain handling cooperative in western australia called cbh they they own their own um they own their own trains, they own their own whole infrastructure, they put back into the community. Um, you know, often people don't think of the car clubs as mutuals, but they're member-owned, right? So the RACVs, and I know that they're controversial probably in some ways um, around, you know, um, some of the issues around cars and sustainability, but I know a lot of them have been doing things like, you know, putting in the electric stuff for vehicles and, and talking about that. And the thing is, if you're a member, you can run. You can run for the board. You may or may not be successful, but it's mutuals and co-ops are one member, one vote, right? So there is a way for people to be parts of these enterprises, very large ones, where you can 
influence things for the better um, and, and be a part of that sort of social economy. An hour is off. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, a new year is coming, and uh, I think you have cheered me up. Uh, we need to face, as you said, Luke, we need to look the tiger in the eye. We need to go out and attend these beautiful many events. How many events is it, Luke, that you have at the Sustainable Living Festival? It's many, isn't it? There's a, there's over 150 events in the program. Wow. Yeah, so there's uh, there is a hell of a lot for people to choose from. Um, Any co-op ones? Only, you know, year after year, we're only seeing that grow. Um And with now, you know, the extended month of, of, of February, and we're even creeping into March, March a little bit this year. So, you know, that that in itself shows in terms of, you know, finding positives and so forth. You know, as Anthony mentioned before, you know, people are concerned and people are hungry for meaningful solutions. And um, it's just tapping into that more and and then having those conversations, as Colin said, even with more conservative-minded people or, you know, all those people who are more concerned that need, you know, help and assistance and and that's what we've got to tackle. So Exactly. For a whole decade, we've been ending this show with saying, be the difference. And I'm on the lookout for a new slogan as we move into soon our 500th show. And I think certainly after today, we need to say not be the difference, but be together, get together. Be the difference together. Make the difference yeah. collaboratively, cooperatively. Yeah. Cooperative does actually mean work together. That the togetherness is the key. Working, Working together. together. Change this.